This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Control over the U.S. Senate may have been decided after Tuesday's night's election, but exact numbers are still to be determined, and from Arizona to Florida to Georgia, there are tight recounts up for respective races determining significant outcomes that will shape the lives of millions. Let's start with Florida. America's most notorious swing state is actually headed for a statewide recount in a major statewide election for both the Senate and the governorship, where Republicans, by latest accounts, are narrowly leading. The races between Governor Rick Scott and Senator Bill Nelson for U.S. Senate and between Ron DeSantis and Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum for governor remain too close to call as well after Tuesday night's election. Under Florida state law, however, a machine recount is triggered if the margin of victory is equal or less than 0.5%, while a manual, hand-driven recount is triggered if it's less than 0.25%. But with all of these laws and all these percentages, what does this actually mean for the broader contours of American democracy and for the voice of Florida's voters? Switching gears over to Arizona, similar challenges persist. Democrat Kirsten Sinema is ahead of Martha McSally by a mere 9,600 votes for the open Senate seat, with 99% of precincts per reporting. And Arizona law states that the margin must be a 0.1% difference between the top two candidates to qualify for a recount. And switching states again over in Georgia, the governor's race is a bit trickier. The GOP's Brian Kemp is leading Stacey Abrams by 63,000 votes, placing him slightly above the 50% line that declares a victor and doesn't send the top two candidates to a runoff. But Stacey Abrams, who Oprah Winfrey most recently and famously stumped for right ahead of the Tuesday election, is vying to become the first black female governor in the United States and has not conceded and insists all votes are to be counted. Layering on top of these different outlays of percentages of recounts of machine ballots and hand ballots is a presidential tweet, which just yesterday outlined the concern from our own president about his own perspective of how the veracity and truth of these elections ought to play out, not defined by the voters, but defined by his voice. So what does this actually mean for the broader prospect of American politics? And what does it mean to have record-breaking turnout in a midterm election this past Tuesday of 2018, but also have a record number of hand recounts that will decide the fate of those American voices? If the recounts were to be halted immediately, just like Trump insists, it would actually have the effect of disenfranchising not only the voters in those states, but even overseas military personnel who submitted absentee ballots, and those can be tallied under or until November 16th. But America, it's no stranger to recounts. And joining American Enough today is Todd Elmer, someone who's been right in the thick of them himself. Todd is actually a seasoned political veteran and operative as both an Obama administration alumni and a member of the Democratic Party's deployment project that sends seasoned veterans to advance the fieldwork of red to blue states, where he most recently helped out Harley Ruda unseat a 30-year incumbent Dana Rohrabacher in red, red Orange County. Todd is actually also a veteran of the blockbuster 2000 presidential campaign between George W. Bush and Al Gore. And after Election Day, Todd shipped right out to Florida as an election recount attorney. This 
is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Todd, thanks so much for joining American Enough. I, I wanted to get a sense from you as to what we can actually expect to see, to feel, to hear in each of the halls of recount uh, offices from Arizona to to Georgia to Florida. It seems that in some respects, the coverage and the imagery of a recount, particularly with Florida in mind, could be marred in chaos. But on the other hand, it, it kind of says that maybe our democratic institutions and our checks on safeguarding the voice of the people is working. But I want to start with what the scene looks like. You were in Florida on election night. Is that right? Election night 2000, yes. In 2000. And so walk us through what it looked like to both be in the midst of adrenaline and excitement, but also start to to taste that that chaos and and feel that chaos as a bit of color in what our our peers um, on both parties might be feeling right now in those three states on the heels of the 2018 election. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Vikram, thank you for having me. It's great to be on here. I'm a huge fan of American Enough, so it's great to be here. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the scene, I'm almost positive that the scene in Florida on election night and then, uh, I'm sorry, the scene at the, the Gore campaign headquarters on election night in 2000 and then following the, in the Florida recount was probably quite different than what we're seeing now. Um, in the 2000 election, it was it really was a scene of chaos. And because it was, you know, almost completely unacceptable, we knew Florida was going to be tight, but um, not we, none of us really imagined what was going to happen. I had actually been down in Florida for the final week of the 2000 campaign. Um, I had worked at the headquarters during the uh, most of the campaign, but the final week we were all sent out to the battleground states. I was born and raised in Florida, so it just made sense that I would go there, and I was an attorney. So I was actually in Miami and West Palm um, for the week prior to the election in 2000 and then on election day. Uh, election night, I was uh, flown back to the headquarters of the Gore campaign in 2000 for what we hoped would be a celebration. And, of course, everyone remembers uh, the networks giving Florida to Gore and then taking it back <laughs> shortly thereafter, at which point uh, things really kind of went sideways. Um, we spent about the next five hours uh, standing in the rain um, in Nashville at the uh, where the outside square was for the celebration. And until uh, Chairman Bill Daly of the campaign came out about two or so in the morning and said, you know, this isn't over. We're, we've got issues in Florida. The campaign isn't over. Um, and the vice president at that point had retracted his concession to uh, Governor Bush at the time. Uh, the next scene was essentially uh, everyone uh, from the campaign went back to the headquarters around three in the morning. And uh, things from that point uh, <laughs> were sort of ordered chaos. We figured out quickly uh, we had still had the Gore Lieberman plane with the big Gore Lieberman uh, logo on the side, and we knew it would fit about 80 people. So um, our national field director at the time uh, signed up 80 of us to get on that plane about 6 or 7 a.m. Um, that a few hours later to go back to Florida. Um, because I had been in Florida, because I was a lawyer, um, because I was from Florida, it was sort of obvious that I would be on that plane, and I was. Um, on that plane, it was interesting. We had um, there was a little bit of a foresight because someone had bought along a re uh, how to do a recount manual, and I have a <laughs> memory of a recount for dummies. Right? <laughs> right. Well, no, no, no. It was, it was how to do a recount. So someone had, you know, there was in the back of someone's head. You know, we we knew that something was a possibility, but uh, there was literally one manual. And so um, at that point, we had Ron Klain, who had been uh, senior in the campaign and with the vice president for years, and he was on that plane up in the front 
uh, section using the fax machine on the plane to run off copies of how to do a recount and then passing those copies back to all of us on the plane as we uh, as we learned where we would be stopping. Uh, the, the plane stops first in Tallahassee, uh, probably around 7 or 8 a.m. Um, after the election. And at that point, we were still sort of shell-shocked. Most of us had been up 24 hours. We'd started the day in whatever battleground state we were in. I had started the day in Florida. And now 24 hours later, we were on a plane going back to Florida in the midst of this chaos. Um, but the plane decided, we decided to land in Tallahassee. Uh, we were sitting on the tarmac and we had our first sort of surreal encounter, uh, not really knowing you know, what the Bush campaign was doing. We just knew that what we were doing. And there was a small private jet that pulled up next to us on the tarmac that morning in Tallahassee. And I remember as we all looked out the window, uh, noticing this small jet at taxi and parked next to us. And out of that jet uh, got Jeb Bush, uh, governor of Florida at the time, and uh, brother of George W. Bush. And he was clearly you know, flying back from Austin, where he had been for Governor Bush's um, party. I remember he looked at this big plane sitting next to his plane on the tarmac with a huge Gore Lieberman logo. And he had this strange look of sort of annoyed exasperation on his face, pointed to it, got on his phone. And we all immediately knew that this was on, that they knew we were here and, and game was on. So it was, um, that was the night of election. Um, we quickly found out and, and order, you know, we started to gain order. We quickly found out um, in, I, I, did, I observed ballots in a couple of different counties. I think the most vivid example that I can give you of sort of the chaos um, that we saw then, and I think probably this is some parallel to what we're going to see now, is uh, I was actually charged with uh, being the Democratic lawyer to argue about uh, the admission of overseas ballots in the 2000 election in, in Manatee County. We had Democratic lawyers in all 67 counties um, when those ballots came in. And we were simply looking at those ballots, each and every one, looking at signatures, looking at postmarks, and um, basically arguing over whether each and every ballot uh, met the requirements for admission under Florida law. And uh, that process was happening. It was an orderly process. It was in front of the canvassing board of that county, um, which was a Republican judge um, and three actually Republican members of that canvassing board. And I was in the front row next to uh, the Bush lawyer or the, the Republican lawyer. And there were probably 50 to 60 people, members of the public watching. There were television cameras, reporters. And we went through each and every ballot and we argued about the admissibility of each and every ballot. The process took probably three hours and at one point, to give you a taste of how the Republicans played this game, uh, I had noticed there was a large gentleman who looked uh, had sort of a torn T-shirt on and was rather burly and sort of looked a little bit out of place in the front row. And he was sitting right next to the Republican lawyer a few seats down from me uh, in this hearing, in this legal hearing, which had seemed odd, but there were a lot of things that seemed odd um, in that recount. And about halfway through, I was arguing about one particular ballot that had been a Republican ballot. And it simply did not meet the requirements. It did not have a postmark. And so I was simply arguing that to the judge that that ballot did not meet the admissibility requirements in Florida. At which point, this large gentleman with the torn T-shirt and sitting next to a Republican lawyer jumped up and shoved his hand in my face about right in my face, six inches from my face, and started screaming at the top of his lungs, saying, why are you trying to deny the good men and women in our country their right to vote? And he just shook his hand. And with that anger coming, screaming out of him in the midst of this, this room full of reporters and attorneys and judges and observers, 
And I remember his words just sort of hung there and he, he stared at me with these bulging eyes. And why was he sitting next to Republican lawyers? This was not an accident. He was sent there to rattle the process, to bring chaos, to do what he could to help his cause. And um, it was interesting because even with that drama, I remember looking at the judge and the judge said nothing. As I recall, the judge had been a Republican. He said nothing and there was silence. And I looked at the judge rather stunned. And I just, I said, your honor, are, are you going to allow questions from the audience? And the judge looked at me and he just paused and very calmly said, I guess not. And, you know, at the end of that hearing, I had another gentleman come up to me who with a very angry face and said, I'm going to remember what I saw the Democratic Party do here today. And you should check your tires and watch your back every moment you're here. It was it was chaos. And that's just how the Republicans operated. So that's a taste of how the. Uh... <laughs> that, that's an incredible set of insights, not only because of um, the dynamics between uh different actors that all play a role in in such a, a critical part of our democratic process of a recount, um, but also because what you describe here were institutional dynamics between different party representatives trying to essentially mediate or reconcile a, what amounts to a dispute between those parties, um, going from that dispute being on the ballot to now going in front of a judge. And I'm curious, um, based off of what you saw in the 2000 Florida recount and you know what's going on in Arizona, in Florida, in Georgia today. How can any one voter in any of those states feel that the adjudication of the ballot, of their ballot that they cast would be appropriately handled with clear-eyed intention of wanting to make the voice heard as opposed to confounding it with potential clashes innate to who Republicans are or who Democrats are. Undoubtedly, one could describe all of this as you know a real mar on democracy, but they could also say the fact that you, a young Democratic attorney, recounting, hand-counting, and hand-litigating votes in front of a Republican judge describes our most essential of democratic processes. How, how do you see it based off of what you observed in that recount? And what, what voice or what uh, perspective would you have to those young voters, perhaps 18 first-time voters in these three states, that would wonder, is their voice really going to count? Yeah, great question. Great question. Well, my sense is that this recount... Um, I hope, and my sense is that it's set up for a much more orderly process. And I hope that a lot of that chaos, um, a lot of that chaos also came from the fact that of you know, the 67 counties in Florida, um, there was no uniform sort of uh, model, you know, recount procedural law or regulation in place. You know, and that actually played into the Supreme Court's decision in 2000. Part of their reasoning in, in uh, stopping the recount and giving the presidency to Bush was this disparate, uh, disparate treatment of how to do the recount in all 67 counties. Florida seems to have learned from that. Florida has enacted a variety of laws since then to do just that, to bring uniformity to uh, recount procedures so that all 67 you know, uh, election officials that are overseeing the process in Florida right now have the same requirements. And, and you mentioned them earlier. You know, If there's, if there's a difference of under 0.5%, there will be a machine recount. And if the difference remains you know, under 0.25% or equal to, there will be a manual recount. So the foundations have been firmed up by Florida law. And so the foundations, at least in Florida, are in place for an orderly 
machine and or manual recount, which I think we're seeing right now is is working. The same thing, the one piece that's, that's the same is that the Republicans yet again, and let's call a spade a spade, the Republicans yet again are injecting chaos into this. And this time they're doing it from the bully pulp and the bully you know, Twitter account of the, this president. This president demanding that this recount be stopped when it's in the middle of an orderly process, when the laws of Florida are being followed, is absolute chaos. And it ties in with you know, his broader pattern of injecting chaos um, wherever he thinks it will advance his agenda. And in, in addition to this you know, bullhorn of chaos coming from the White House, we've already seen this past Saturday Republican mobs protesting in front of election offices in Broward County and in other Democratic places demanding that the recount be stopped, just like Republicans sent mobs in the 2000 recount. You know, some folks remember what we call the, the Brooks Brothers riots in 2000, which was when a large group of Republican staffers from the Hill, young staffers, went down to Florida and literally caused a riot in the Miami courthouse to try to stop the recount there. So those same tactics, the Republicans are using them again. This time they have the, the additional, um, you know, Twitter bullhorn of this president. So I hope that the laws in place in Florida can withstand this assault coming from the Republican Party. I think they can. I think young voters should take heart in that fact. And hopefully this recount will play out as the laws of Florida dictate it to and not based on you know, ridiculous, chaotic statements coming from the White House. And and I, I think, you know, for, for our listeners, just to ground those statements from the White House in, in uh, with precision, um, you know, most recently on November 12th, around uh, 4.44 a.m., Donald Trump actually tweeted that the Florida election, um, as just one example of the three states in play, should be in called of in favor of uh, the Republican Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis over the Democrats, and actually started to infuse this thought that ballots might be missing or ballots may be forged, and that we should just simply accept the results from election night. Um, but as a contrast to that, um, and you know, in defense of the orderly nature of the Democratic uh, voting infrastructure. That, that you spoke to, Todd, um, state election monitors in Broward County actually told uh, the Miami Herald uh, this weekend that they've seen no evidence of voter fraud. And the Palm Beach County State Attorney uh, Dave Ornberg, a Democrat, said he has seen no evidence of voter fraud. And, you know, the very task force, the state agency tasked with overseeing elections, says it's not investigating any claims of voter fraud. And uh, President Trump's own Department of Homeland Security on Election Day, on this past Tuesday uh, during the midterm election, said that there were no overt instances of any meddling or fraud. So on the one hand, you have the the voice of the president booming, um, but all of the agencies tasked with actually being on the ground, uh, God bless them, are, are seeming to approach this with a very clear-eyed strategy. But I want to contrast that um, with the candidates themselves. You described with a lot of color and vividness, Todd, that when you were uh, landing in and parachuting into Florida in in 2000 for the for the recount there on the presidential side that you saw images of judges you saw images of disgruntled voters and you saw images of surrogates and candidates um, on the campaign in this case you spoke to Jeb Bush the brother um, and you know soon to be thereafter presidential conductor himself um, being on the ground to to presumably speak to the media um, advise the campaign advise his own brother in this moment and fast forwarding to 2018 we actually just heard from one 
one of the uh, Florida candidates um, uh, for uh, for Florida um, that from his own campaign manager, Mark Elias, said at the end of this process, Senator Nelson is going to prevail. I'm very measured in how I treat what I say. And when I say it, it's currently a jump ball. And I mean that. Um, separately, we actually heard that uh, the mayor of Tallahassee, Gillum, had already conceded to, Dan, uh, to DeSantis, but withdrew that concession late, earlier this weekend. So in each of these instances, you both have the actual robust hand counting, machine counting, depending on your instance, recount at play. But you also have the, the peculiar actions and words of the candidates themselves who are not yet uh, voted into office. Based off of what you saw in the year 2000 and based off of what we've seen from the vitriol and sort of the, the tenor of the rhetoric between and among candidates in the year 2018, at this moment in time, when we are in a recount mode, no one person has been crowned uh, king or queen, what should the role be of candidates themselves? Do they have an obligation to allow the recount to play as it will? Do they have an obligation to shore up support and animate their own basis? Or are they obligated to sort of just stand back? I'm sure there's no one answer, but based off of what you saw in 2000, mm -hmm. what do you think is the right approach? Yeah, that's a um, thoughtful, uh, thoughtful question. I, You know, Vikram, I think what should happen – well, let me start with I think what, what is happening. You know, in the 2000 recount, um, Al Gore took a very measured, very statesman approach, and he let Warren Christopher, who had been the former secretary of state, run the recount of, uh, you know, operation for him. And you know, many have actually criticized that. Many Democrats have actually criticized that sort of statesmanlike um, approach, saying you know, the Democrats in 2000 you know, stood back and, and remained statesmanlike while – uh, the Republicans, led by Jim Baker, um, who ran uh, George W. Bush's recount effect, you know, came at this as a street fight, you know, and, and a you know example of placing, you know, trying to intimidate lawyers like me and and, and the chaos that went on. Um, but the candidates themselves, at least in 2000, I thought you know George W. Bush took a very measured stand back approach, even though his operatives, you know, were out in a street fight mode. This time around, you know, it's really too early to tell, but the difference, but it seems to be somewhat similar in that. Um, you have partisans, again, from the White House themselves, screaming and injecting chaos, saying votes should not be counted. Stop, stop, stop. Um, in terms of the candidates, you know, I've seen that it seems that some of the candidates, um, whether it's Bill Nelson or Ron DeSantis or, who, you know, who have you, are already pursuing some legal options um, to bring some, uh, bring some lawsuits uh, in this case. Um, at this point, they're still unfolding, so I can't really speak to them. But it seems to me that the Republicans are taking the same approach, you know, scream, cause chaos, uh, everything with the objective of stopping the counting of American votes. And that's abhorrent. I think the way this should happen, and I think is, is that a candidates and operatives should, you know, candidates at least, and that includes party leadership such as the president at this point, should step back, should not interfere with this process should allow it to play out, should allow election officials to follow the laws they have in place. Again, Florida has put laws in place since 2000 to make this an orderly recount. That orderly recount and those laws should be followed. And in an ideal world, the candidates would stand back, including the president, allow the process to play out and go from there. And, you know, I, I think that's naive to think that's going to happen, but that's the way it should happen. And every time that this president tweets out another ridiculous, unfounded claim saying that, you know, the recount should be stopped every time, you know, Republican Party leaders, you know, 
follow that and scream out the same thing. They're injecting chaos into what could be and should be an orderly process. And you, you've definitely seen this process play out in the past. Um, and you mentioned a moment ago the need to to make sure that folks feel that their voice is counted um, during this time. I, I'm sort of intrigued by where the broader contours might play out for when it means um, in this country, how other people overseas may even observe the very faith of uh, America's electorate. And by that, I mean um, the BBC, uh, you know, a, a international media publication um, run out of the UK actually just published a piece that actually titles the headline saying that the American recount system is descending into rancor. Um, we have over time a president saying that um, elections may be rigged. And we have also another consideration where we, we talk about broader conversations of free expression in this nature, whether that's casting a vote at the ballot, whether that's the right to organize, the right to protest. Um, how do we actually make sure that we uh, – preserve not only the voices and the votes as you laid out of allowing the process to play out and stand back respectfully, but is there something that we can also do as a nation, as organizers, maybe even just civic-minded uh, volunteers to try and reshore that sense that America's democracy and our republic is not ripe for the uh, tweeting and undercutting and undermining, but is still ripe for the taking? Uh, I'm curious if you could reflect on your own organizing experiences. I know that you, you've just detailed stories from the 2000 presidential campaign, but you recently deployed um, as a part of the Democratic National Committee's deployment project to a very, very deep red state, uh, red portion, apologies, of Orange County, California, and were able to actually successfully unseat a 30-year incumbent in favor of some a new candidate with, with new ideas. That strikes me as a success story, but that's juxtaposed against this BBC headline where the world is watching and maybe observing and asking whether America's democracy is really on stable footing. What can we learn from your insights organizing and activating about the health of our democracy in this present day? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Well, you know, Vikram, I think it's interesting that you bring up sort of the world is watching. And and the reality is that our American system of democracy is under stress. The various elements and the various institutions are under stress. And a lot of that is coming out of this White House. And we knew this. We knew this would happen. Um, I think we all, as this president came in, we said, well, our institutions are going to be checked, stressed. Our checks and balances are going to be stressed. And now we have our system of recounts that is, is in play and is coming under stress from the uh, forces that are trying to, you know, uh, uh, destabilize it. And, you know, if you want to get really broad, this is what a lot of folks were concerned about when they talked about Russian influence in this last election. The Russians wanted to do and they, exactly what we're seeing now. They wanted to destabilize our democracy and have the world say, wow, is the world's largest and oldest democracy going to last? You know, and is it going to withstand the stress? Is it really, you know, is it really all that, you know, we had hoped and thought it would be? That has yet to be seen. You know, we're watching each of our institutions, our court system come under assault from this White House. We're seeing our election systems come under assault by voter suppression in Georgia, by voter suppression in other southern states. We're seeing it come, our, our recount system come under assault and attack from this White House and this president. And we are under stress. That has yet to be 
you know, the result has yet to be played out, but here's the point. I am absolutely optimistic that the system is withstanding the stress. And I'll give you one example, as you say, from these recent midterms. Um, as you noted, I was sent by the DNC's deployment project to help the field operation in the 48th District of California, which is in Orange County, and it ranges from Laguna Beach in the south up to Seal Beach in the north, which is about 30 to 45 minutes south of L.A. This district had been, and, and really that county, Orange County, had been deep red for many, many years, but over the last several years has been shifting to purple. And there were four districts in Orange County that were all considered targeted swing races because the demographics have been shifting. And frankly, um, I think what we're seeing is an electorate that is becoming more and more disgusted with the extreme policies and actions coming out of the White House. For example, the district we ran in was held by Dana Rohrabacher, a far-right Republican, a, a strong ally of this current president, and a strong ally of Russia. And over the last several years, we've seen his support dwindle. Two years ago, Dana Rohrabacher won re-election by 17 percentage points. Two years later, in just two years, we unseated him. He was flipped by Democrat Harley Ruda, who won by around four to five percentage points. That's massive change. That's, what, 21 percentage points change? So I think that's a combination of, one, Democrats put a great candidate in there. Two, uh, Dan Warbucker has continued to um, tax farther and farther to the right. Three, folks are completely disgusted with, you know, the this current president and his actions. I think you combine that, and it led to this win. The DNC had sent uh, operatives such as myself, seasoned veteran, political veterans, to a wide variety of these targeted races to help to bolster. And here's what I saw. We saw thousands, literally thousands, of volunteers coming from all over to help to help unseat this one far-right Republican, but with the goal of winning back the United States House, House of Representatives. I think the Democratic Party Democratic Party's unified view on taking back the House this time and its unified strategy, you know, which included sending folks uh, like us in these deployment projects, which included a wide variety of efforts, worked because you had this wave of volunteers and people who came to knock on doors, you know, who came to hold, you know, signs, who came to help out, who came from all over this country. I cannot count the number of people that I met, volunteers, when we were organizing in this Orange County race, who said this was their first time. So many people said, I've never done this before, but we've got to change this. We've got to win back the House. We've got to stop this insanity coming out of the White House. And we'll do it here in this county. And it happened in districts all over the country. And that was heartening to me. And I, to me, that says our system is working. It says citizens are becoming engaged on levels we've never seen before. The people are fighting back. The people are fighting back. And it's working. And that gives me hope. That, that that must feel extra incredible when you just reflect on where we are today in 2018 versus where we started the story, which is your description of both election night and, and walking into the thick of the recount in the year 2000. Uh, it must feel almost extraordinary to have felt that sort of anguish or defeat um, after seeing how that recount played out for the candidate that you were working for then versus the victory that um, your candidate as well as the House of Representatives and the Democrats saw now. Walk us through a little bit of that juxtaposition and, and what that kind of means in terms of the broader strokes of hope in our democracy. Well, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, wow, it's a, it's a big, big question. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, going from sort of the sense of um, despair and anguish and anger of, you know, what happened in the 2000 process, you know, leading up through the, you know, the resurgence of hope and decency and confidence um, that Barack Obama bought, brought back, you know, for eight years, and then seeing the whiplash, you know, when Donald Trump was elected and seeing the whiplash of the chaos that he's injected into our society over the last two years. I felt like this midterm, Vikram, was, um, and I think this is why so many people volunteered and so many people got involved. The, the image that I had in my head was that, you know, Barack Obama had put this nation, you know, on track and things were moving in the right direction. I feel like with the 2016 election of this current president, it felt like the, the vehicle, you know, that is our nation really ran off the rails. And where we, where we were and where we are right now almost come leading up to the midterms was the nation almost, you know, on the edge after having passed through the guardrails on the edge of falling off a cliff. And I felt like these midterms were our last chance to write that card, to put it back up on top of the cliff and not have it tumble off as it would have if we had lost, uh, not regained the house. And there had been no check to what this president's agenda is and is stopping this president's chaos. So I think there's a renewed sense of hope that we've stopped the sanction from falling off a cliff, if you will, with these midterms, but we're still in a very precarious state. So I'm glad that we could catch our breath, that we could take back control of the House, that we could know that we can now at least, the system of checks and balances is bolstered. Again, going back to what I was saying, that our system is under huge stress, but we're watching all the different parts work together. We're watching individual citizens volunteer in campaigns. We're watching our judicial system, you know, fight back against, you know, political influence. Um, we're now bolstering our legislature with uh, a Democratic majority in the House that can balance out, you know, the Republican majority in the Senate and the Republican in the White House. So I do have a renewed sense of hope, but, it, and I think a lot of people do, um, but there's a lot, there's so much more to do. That's right. There's a lot and, more to do. And, and one of those, um, uh, you know, ladders of of need and, and opportunity in terms of the more work to be done. Really, uh, for for me, or as I've observed it, seems to vector around the identity of free expression in the United States. Uh, uh, you know, you have both record turnout, not only in terms of those showing up to the polls, but uh, as you said, record volunteers trying to help organize communities around campaigns. And then you also have that contrasted by, you know, a heightened sense of attack on our media, you know, most notably with our president going after a CNN anchor and revoking his press credentials to access the White House um, a few weeks ago. We had the a, a global conversation around uh, the Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi and his murder um, at the hands of the Saudi Arabian government, um, and maybe the lack of commentary on that free expression and that sort of attack on dissent from this current White House. Um, and you've seen record number of uh, state legislative attempts to undercut voting rights by carving out new exceptions and new comments on same-day registration and the type of ID that you need to actually show up and vote, a couple of long lines. Um, you know, drip by drip, it could be argued that there has been a an assault on different aspects of voice in America. Um, and that different 
types of communities have been disenfranchised as a result of this assault. Uh, but then when you juxtapose them against countries like Saudi Arabia or other autocratic regimes in Central America, it does seem that America's broader prospects of preserving free expression and the tension and the checks and balances still seem to be playing to our advantage. I'm curious from your perspective, having seen individual votes literally be litigated in the balance of a judge in the year 2000, and now reflecting on these individual attacks on you know those voices in the year 2018, what's at risk when it comes to the identity of America as the land of free expression? Um, when we see this onslaught of attempts to chill individual voices, what are we actually potentially putting at stake here in terms of our nation's identity? Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, free expression is under assault. Again, I mean, directly at the highest levels from this White House, trying to attack any and all criticism uh, and attack in the most basic, disgusting, you know, unpresidential, awful ways um, that really debase the presidency and debase America. And but I'll tell you again, going back, I believe our system is working. And, and you, you, know, you referenced voter turnout. Voter turnout was record numbers for Democrats. For example, I mean, we had 69% of the Latino vote in this, these last midterms went to Democrats. 67% of voters under 29 voted Democrats. That's huge. The direction that the nation is going, both with our demographics, the most growing demographics in the country, whether it's Hispanics, um, you know, or what have you, are that these are all voting in Democratic directions and Democratic policies. Are passing statewide across the country. You have more progressive uh, laws um, on whether it's everything from you know the use of marijuana for adults to uh, a woman's right to choose, but progressive policies and acceptance of, of of marriage equality, for example. Progressive policies are on the march, and progressive voters are coming out in record numbers. So that gives me ultimate hope, and that is the ultimate form of expression in terms in a democratic society: someone's vote, and those numbers are there. So free expression is absolutely under assault, but I do feel that these numbers and these increased turnouts and these increased engagement and the active resistance of our institutions to you know, political manipulation all point in the right direction. And you know, I think, I think we're in the right path. I do. That's a great point. Um, and I, you know, you, you mentioned something in the very beginning that I want to circle back to, which is uh, the peculiar nature of the state of Florida in each of these conversations around votes and protecting votes and recounting votes. Uh, you know, it, some people will associate Florida with, you know, being a retirement haven for, for a lot of different communities. Some people will associate it with uh, a, a huge uh, Cuban-American diaspora um, in its, uh, you know, southern parts and southern tips of the state. Um, others will associate it with its football. And others will associate it with the hanging chad, you know, the, the noticeable and, and infamous uh, set of ballot maneuvers um, that created some problems in counting the ballots back in 2000. What What's the... What's your yep. sense about what's going on in Florida? I mean, you grew up there. There's a vast diversity there. Is there something unique to the electorate or the upbringing or the culture that puts it in the crosshairs of recounts time and time again? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I am a Florida native and was born and raised there, and I, I love the state, and I, I feel like I can see it in sort of a, a clear-eyed viewpoint. Um, you know, 
it does have a real Florida does have a really diverse um, population. As you said, there are, are many, many retirees from all over the country and frankly, all over the world that come. You have a large and vibrant uh, Hispanic community sort of in, absolutely in southern Florida. Um, in Orange County, where I grew up, actually, near Orlando, um, is one of the most purple districts in the country in the sense that it really is a microcosm of the nation. You've got you know, sort of very conservative evangelical Republicans. You've got um, liberal, smart, well-educated you know, tech entrepreneurs coming in. You've got large Hispanic community and population, large and higher. You've got it all there. And I, I think in a way that's probably this demographic blend, I think, is probably why Florida is always in the crosshairs, because it does represent, if you will, in all respects, a little microcosm of the country. Um, and you know, I, I love the state and I'm biased in a way, but I'm pleased to see that they have, at least in their recount laws, really been working and I applaud them. You know, they have passed this, this slate of laws to, you know, make a recount process smooth and steady and, um, you know, the same across all of their counties. So now that we're in the middle of watching this and we're watching, you know, folks count votes again and we're watching the Republicans send mobs to try to stop those votes and, and file lawsuits. Um, I, I think that's – let's see how the system works, but I think Florida is in a much better place, a much better place, and a much more organized place to let this process play out if we can – you know, it's, it's a microcosm for the nation, right? It's got an organized system of laws in place to deal with this, this situation of the recount, and you've got an organized effort by – and let's call the spade a spade – by the Republican Party to inject chaos and to stop that process for their political favor. So – you know, I'm watching here on the sidelines like you and everyone else, and I, you know, I hope that process that Florida has in place will be allowed to play out as it is designed. And, you know, we, we shall see. We shall see. Corporations and um, business do have an obligation, a civic obligation, to speak out, you know, especially in a vacuum of leadership in Washington and in, in sort of a vacuum of organized leadership, uh, you know, drummed up by the chaos this, this White House is churning out, I think we've seen corporations realize that, wow, they do have a role to play. And when citizens here and abroad start to question their faith in our government, well, other institutions, uh, other stakeholders, whether it's in the corporate realm or individual citizens, do need to step up and get involved. And that's what we're seeing. Um, it's the system under stress, which is what we you know, a lot of us thought we would see when this current president came in, we're seeing that assault and we're seeing the institutions come under direct stress. The only way they're that democracy is going to continue to thrive is if all system, all stakeholders in our system participate. So I'm thrilled to see CEOs speaking out. I'm thrilled to see individual citizens coming and volunteering for the first time. You know, I was even heartened. We had some volunteers that came from overseas to help on this uh, midterm election in Orange County, came all the way. And I was talking to one of them from Ireland. And I said, well, this is great that you're here. Um, we, we need your help. <laughs> and it was very heartening because he said, absolutely. He said, I'm here because the world cares about the United States. We do. And we see the United States in trouble right now with the current environment being driven by the chaos from this White House. And we want to help. What happens in the United States, your stability, affects our stability. And he was speaking in terms of someone from overseas, from Ireland. And he said, we're here to help. And it really almost, it was an almost an emotional moment for me because it realized, well, you know, when you're in trouble, when you're under stress, that's when you need your friends. 
and seen friends, if you will, come from all over the country, from all over the world to shore up, you know, this grand experiment that we call America was incredibly heartening. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take concerted effort. And I believe we will stand the current environment. I will believe the nation and our democracy will come out stronger, but it's going to require a level of participation from individuals, from stakeholders across our nation that we've never seen before. So That's absolutely right. And uh, we'll end by, by noting that uh, as you laid that out, Todd, um, CBS local news at the Georgia State Capitol it just reports that a police officer arrested a state senator, uh, Nakima Williams, during a rally at the Capitol, um, simply as she was demanding that every vote be counted. Uh, so to say nothing else for, for the current uh, state of play and our times of trying to protect our voice, um, there are certainly um, countless people out there shouting, being arrested, standing up for one another, and just like you did in the 2000 recount, um, making sure that every ballot gets counted. Todd Elmer, thank you so much for joining American Enough. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.